All right, we're in the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, steadfast and stable, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we want to have hearts that are willing to learn. We want to have hearts that hear from you. We want to have hearts impassioned by your Spirit to seek you fully. Lord, thank you that we have a visible representation with communion of your sacrifice, that we can come and that we are your friend. Lord, we, in, we intercede for our brothers and sisters in Nashville at Covenant Presbyterian Church, and the school as well. Father, there's much mourning and weeping, and we pray that you would be very near to them and minister uh, your love, your mercy, your grace in the days, the weeks, the months to come, God. I pray, God, that they would continue to be faithful. They would uh, not turn away from you, Lord, but seek you even more um, during this tough time. Give wisdom to the, to the leaders there as they walk through challenging times. Give an extra measure of grace to the pastor uh, who lost his child. And uh, Lord, you can, you can take the worst of the worst and turn it for good and use it for good, Lord. So use this for good and use it for your glory and the different funeral services that are happening. May the gospel be preached in its fullness. May people come to know you. May true ministry happen, Lord, and may the body of Christ uh, in that city uh, be the body of Christ to that church. We pray this for your glory, Lord. Amen. All right, last week we looked at the supremacy of Christ in eternity. That is his supremacy before creation. And this week we're going to look at the supremacy of Christ in creation. In this next section, um, I'm indebted to one of my favorite theologians, D.A. Carson. Um, he had some good thoughts to say. Uh, one of the, the things that I think is important to remember is America at one point, uh, we had a king over us. Didn't go so well, right? A.K.A. the American Revolution. Usually when we think of kings or queens, we tend to think of a monarch who is the head 
of the state, but not the head of the government. So if you've taken any political science classes in high school or college, there's a distinction. But we, we tend to think more towards like uh, the United Kingdom's setup. But in the Bible, there's no distinction. So if you are the king, guess what? You reign. That is what you do. You have the authority. So when we think about kingdoms, uh, we really don't want to think about the United Kingdom because that's really not uh, the best example. If anything, we'd want to think of something like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. There's an absolute authority. There is a king, and he rules in his fullness, sometimes mediated through his extended family. So when we speak of the kingdom of God and we speak, when we speak of Jesus reigning, we are not saying he's like the constitutional monarch. He's just like a figurehead over the world. We are saying that he is not just the head of the state, but he's the, the head of the government. By definition, this is the reign of God, that he rules and he reigns over his entire creation. So there's two distinctions that can be helpful when we talk about God's reign. And here's the first. When we talk about the reign of God, the first distinction is that there's the reign of God and all of God's sweeping sovereignty. The reign of God under which everybody falls. Every single person ever created, every single person who takes breath, whether they believe in God or not, they are under the sovereign rule of God. So you're in the kingdom of God, whether you like it or not. You don't choose to be in that kingdom. It is part of being a creature. God reigns. In that sense, the kingdom is virtually equivalent to divine sovereignty or divine providence. God reigns, and everyone, everything, every event, every item, every matter, every thought is finally subject to his sovereignty. Amen? Amen. Second, there's what might be called the subset of God's sweeping reign, under which there is life and under which there is salvation. This is a subset of God's sovereignty, and we we see an example of this in John chapter 3. Turn there briefly because I want you to see it for yourself. This is Jesus speaking with the Pharisee Nicodemus. And it says, This man came to Jesus, verse 2, by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here we see this subset of God's reign, where in order to enter that subset of God's reign, in order to enter that kingdom, what has to happen? You have to be born again, right? There has to be repentance and belief. He says, so if you want to enter that kingdom, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. You have to be born again. So clearly in this sense, there are some people who are in the kingdom and some people who are not in the kingdom, right? So that's not to be confused with God's overarching sovereignty. This is the subset of God's overarching sovereignty under which there is eternal life. It's that sense that the Bible talks about the kingdom coming. 
So it has to be said, this distinction between the kingdom of God's sovereignty and the kingdom of which there is life, here's the thing, that's just not a New Testament distinction. Look at Daniel chapter 4. This is after the fiery furnace. And starting in chapter 4 of Daniel, verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now notice what King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most wicked kings. Look what he says. Even this wicked king. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So, that's the idea of this, this eternal dominion and kingdom that has lasted from before the beginning of time. It was before us, and it will be there after we breathe our last. It will continue in to eternity. But then Daniel, when he's interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, just go back a couple chapters. So he interprets the dream, and he says towards the end of his interpretation, Daniel chapter 2, Verse 44, he says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. He's talking future, right? He's going to set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So on the one hand, there's this kingdom, and it lasts, and it's always been there. It's God's kingdom, and he's reigning, and he's sovereign. But then there's this aspect of this coming kingdom that will be coming where what happens? What, is, what does Daniel tell us? A kingdom that shall never be destroyed. What's it going to do to the other kingdoms? Break in pieces those other kingdoms. They will not be able to stand before the coming kingdom. So what we are looking at today is really the first aspect or distinction. So back in Colossians, It says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created. Everyone everywhere is under the rule, reign, and power of King Jesus. He created this world. He rules over it. If you're created, you're part of that kingdom. He is your sovereign. He is your king. And look how this applies specifically to Jesus and what we're told about him. Verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, Jehovah Witnesses and some other uh, cults try to use this as proof that Jesus was, was created. This word firstborn had long since ceased to be used exclusively in its literal sense. Now, there's a reason the Jehovah Witnesses have to insert the word other uh, five or six times in this passage. So this word uh, firstborn had ceased to be used primarily in its literal sense. When we say something like the prime minister, are we talking about the first minister ever? No, it's a title, right? And what does the title indicate? He's the most preeminent. A man in the prime of his life has long since left the first part of his life behind. True? So again, when it talks about this word firstborn, really coming from the Latin primus or first, 
It came to denote not priority in time, but preeminence in rank. He ranks over the creation. Uh, if Paul had wanted to show that Jesus was part of creation, he could have used a couple different adjectives in the Greek that would have made it clear and, and words that he was quite familiar with. He doesn't do that. He says he's the firstborn. Uh, J.B. Lightfoot points out that the term firstborn referred to a right that was accorded the first son, a special place in the family. The term lost the meaning of the first in time and developed the meaning of first in priority. Following this reason, Paul stated that Jesus is his father's representative and heir and has the management of the divine household, i.e. all creation, committed to him. Look at Psalm 89. We'll see an example of this word used. Psalm 89, if we start in verse 20, it says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is the same word in the Greek Old Testament that we find in Colossians. This word here, the, I will make him the firstborn. Now, one, just speaking genealogically in David's line, was he, was he the first of his brothers? No. Was he the first king over Israel? No. <clears throat> what we have here uh, nicely going on is an example of Hebrew pa parallelism in verse 27 where uh, you have one line and then the second part of that verse or that line um, expands or comments on the first line. So look at verse 27. I'll make him the firstborn. Oh, what does that mean? The highest of the kings of the earth. So we, that's called Hebrew parallelism. It comments back on the first one or expands on it. So that idea of the firstborn, well, that, that makes quite sense even in the, in the, in the Colossians passage. What, the highest of the kings, right? He's over all creation. It shows supremacy. It shows he is the preeminent one. And here's the thing. Christ doesn't just rule over the church. We'll look at that in future week, weeks. Um, he rules over creation. What does it say in Matthew 28? All authority, right? All authority? All authority? And where's what, all authority where? On heaven and on earth, right? It's been given to him. So who is above Jesus? No one. He is the preeminent one. So when he's talking, and we'll talk a little bit about it further, but when he's talking here about the thrones and the dominions and the rulers and the authorities, it's kind of like, yeah, he created those two. The highest thing you can possibly think of, Jesus created it, he's over it. Can you name one thing he didn't create? No. He created it all. So what are these thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities? There's different passages. We're not going to look at it uh, today because of the time, but there's different passages that use at least some of these uh, words that are used in Colossians, the thrones, the dominions, or rulers, or authorities. 
Now, potentially, uh, you could read that and you're just thinking, oh, it's just talking about like earthly rulers. Well, that's actually not the case. Um, in context, if you look at these different passages, even if you look at some of the, what would be called like the Jewish uh, intertestamental writings, some of the different books um, that they wrote and things, uh, it refers specifically to some type of invisible uh, creatures, which would be, in our case, angels or potentially fallen angels. So these thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, many uh, theologians believe there's some type of classification of, of the angels. Uh, not just maybe the angels that didn't fall, but potentially the angels that did fall. Even if you think if we just have terms like seraphim, right? Cherubim, different types of angels. So it looks like there's authority structures in the invisible realm that we really don't know too much about. But even that, and think about it, what is one of the things that, that Paul's attacking here for the Colossians and trying to strike down is this, is this Gnosticism, right? And that Christ was just this created thing and he's just this watered-down version of God in, in this puny little form. Now Christ is saying, here, uh, Jesus, Paul's saying, here's what Christ is really like, here's what Jesus is really like. And these, these principalities, thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, they have nothing on him. Nothing at all. So 1 Peter talks a similar. It says, Jesus, who has gone into heaven, 1 Peter 3, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter there brings in the word angels to make it a little more clear. This otherworldly realm exists. Sometimes we're kind of ignorant of it. But it exists in Christ. Guess what? He reigns there too. And guess what? He created it too. So he created them. He's more powerful than them. What are some of these powers and authorities, the fallen angels, what are they doing? They're creating all sorts of havoc. They're destroying lives. They're destroying America. You don't think they had a hand in what happened in Nashville? And the way that whole thing was spun... It, it was, I'm just telling you, it was disgusting to read the news most of last week. It was atrocious. Uh, one person, uh, an MSNBC host, they did a segment just days after the shooting interviewing a trans person, and it was, it was all about the transgender community. And the caption underneath it, just days after six people were murdered, three children, transgender Americans under siege. Really? You want to talk about tone deaf? Four days later, Biden's communications director, the one that gets asked all the questions on a regular basis, she said, our hearts go out to the trans community as they are under attack. They're under attack? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So there's this, uh, there's this, there's this thing that... Um, Movie producers have done, and, and they're probably not like super popular ones, but they're, they're kind of funny. You've probably seen different cuts with like Star Wars, and they've redone movie trailers. But one of the things they've done recently, which is it's really impressive, is they do what's called these recuts. And so what they do is they take uh, a movie that's a comedy, and then they make a trailer from that comedy movie using the actual footage from the movie, and then they make a new trailer, and they totally spin the thing around, and using music, and then obviously cutting it just at the right way, they, if you would watch that trailer, it would look like the, the movie that's really a comedy, 
is actually like a thriller horror. It's kind of impressive. Uh, they did it with uh, Christmas Vacation, with Chevy Chase. They did it with, with Dumb and Dumber. But they recut the trailer, so instead of it, it being this funny comedy, it's this, it's this thriller, suspense, horror movie. Think about it. I mean, they're taking actual scenes from the movie, just like a normal trailer would do, but they take it and they paint a completely different narrative. They spin the narrative. And that is what is happening before our eyes on a regular basis. You saw it on display this past week. The narrative spun. Three children and three adults murdered by someone claiming to be a man, and the narrative is the poor and unfortunate trans community that needs so much help. Not Christians are targeted, not how about those poor children. And yesterday, members of the trans community gathered at the courthouse in Nashville and held up signs with the number seven. Six were murdered, but they say seven were murdered, indicating that the, that the, that the killer, their murderer, was a victim. They make the mass murderer and are trying to make her a victim. Listen, don't think this recutting of the trailer isn't happening all around you. That is the danger of intaking different forms of social media and news. They have an angle, they have a spin. And listen, you're not immune to it. I mean, it's kind of like the COVID shot. You can get the shot, but you're not immune to COVID, okay? <clears throat> you're not immune to it. So, you, so don't say it, it doesn't affect me. You're not immune to it. Your children are not immune to it. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, the sooner that you can accept that this world is against you and that this world hates you and everything you believe in, the sooner you're going to be able to make it and get along a little bit better. As long as you're thinking, man, as long as I just say the right thing or do the right thing, as long as I kind of sort of, sort of a little compromise or capitulate, you're not at the place you need to be. Okay, they don't take prisoners. And they don't make friends. So the sooner you accept the world is against you and this culture is against you, you're going to be doing a lot better. And listen, my, my younger children, I mean, they've only dipped their big toe into the cesspool of this world. And guess what? I want to make sure they don't go swimming. But if we're not careful, we might just be pushing our children in to the deep end, hoping they can swim. I mean, why would we even dream of doing that? So don't, don't succumb. We have to stand firm. I mentioned it, it's probably been a couple months ago, but there was a hockey player in the NHL, and, and they had a pride night. So then in the, in the warm-ups, they wear pride jerseys. And he basically said, I'm not, I'm not going to participate, so that means I won't do the pregame. That's fine. But I'm not wearing the jersey. And they've been doing pride things for years and years and wearing the jerseys. But this guy, this year, stood up. And what do you think happened? Huge uproar, right? Called every single name in the book and even more. So he took a stand because of his faith. He made it very clear. One person took a stand. What happened? Well, just a couple weeks ago, Two brothers who also play in the NHL for the Florida Panthers 
they decided not to participate in the pregame skate. Why? Because that was the pride night, and they refused to wear the jerseys. And before that, entire te- at least one entire team said, we're not wearing the jersey. And just a couple weeks ago, the, the goaltender for the San Jose Sharks, he sat out the warm-up, warm-ups. Why? Because it was pride night. He's like, I'm not wearing the jersey. I'm not putting the rainbow on. I'm not showing that I support that lifestyle. Here's what one of them said. Here's what the goaltender said. I am choosing not to endorse something that is counter to my personal convictions, which are based on the Bible, the highest authority in my life. Like, I want to be on that guy's team. Okay, not his NHL team, but on his Jesus team. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's bold. That is bold, taking a public stand. Uh, I mean, he is a professional athlete. He's in the national spotlight. They talk about him on ESPN. They've had, all, all of these guys have been talked about uh, in, in some of the worst ways possible. They, and they knew that, and they took a stand. They are paying the price, but they took a stand. And one day, they'll stand before Jesus, and he will say what? Well done, good and faithful servant. But, but I believe part of it goes back to that initial guy a couple months ago. One guy took a stand. And it, what did it do? Embolden others to take a stand. So you need to decide now what you'll do when it comes your turn. you got to decide now. Decide what you'll do when it comes your turn at work. Decide what you'll do when it comes your turn at school, when the discussion comes up. But do not compromise. Do not compromise. Jesus' kingdom is worth way more than what the world has to offer. And when you compromise, you're choosing the kingdom of this world over the kingdom of Jesus. It's not worth it. It is not worth it. Mark, Mark Dever, you know, we've been using some of his curriculum and, and books. He's uh, started Nine Marks. Uh, not because his name is Mark, by the way. <clears throat> but he started Nine Marks. He tells, uh, he went to a, a pretty prestigious uh, university for his doctorate, and he tells of the first day there when he's meeting his dissertation advisor, the person he's going to be working with literally for years and, and can give or not give the stamp of approval for his doctoral dissertation. He says on the first day, he just walked into his office and basically was like, hey, I'm a Bible, and he knew, he knew the professor was not. Uh, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I believe the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. I just thought I should say that and get that out there from the beginning. Why did he do that? In part, so that he would not have any fear in the future of trying to hide that from his advisor, of trying to curry favor with his advisor, thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll just, you know, uh, shave this part off or shave this part off. He's like, at that point, I knew I had been knocked probably as low as I possibly could go in that guy's eyes, and the only place to go was up, and he knew where I stood. I mean, that's standing firm. That's standing firm. On the flip side, D.A. Carson tells a story about a, a theologian. He was good friends, probably still is, good friends with him. And, and, the, and the theologian's like, 
He's encouraging them, take a stand on this, take a stand on this. When, when they were both in, in undergrad, he's like, I take a stand on this in undergrad, like, it's going to affect me getting into a grad school. He gets into the grad school he wants. He's like, take a stand, take a stand on biblical truth. He's like, if I take a stand in, in my graduate, I might not get into my doctorate program. He, and, he, and he's like, take a stand. And he finally gets into the doctorate program he wants. True story. And he's like, you need, you've gotten the doctorate program. Take a, no, I, I might not get the stamp of approval. I might not get my doctorate. And, and he D.A. keeps telling this story, right? And now this guy is a, is a well-known theologian, and he's totally compromised his faith. Compromised his faith. Never took a stand, and guess what? If, when you never take a stand, you've just trained yourself to never take a stand. And he's never taken a stand, and he's capitulated. He's gone the opposite way. So take a stand. Listen, there's, there's the kingdom of Jesus, and then there's the kingdom of man, right? And when God gives the people what they want, do you know what happens when God gives the people what they want? Yeah, it's disaster. The Israelites tried to force God's hand, give us a king, right? He's like, I am your king. Now, we want, we want a different king. Well, what did they get? King Saul. I mean, he seems promising, right? Apparently he's pretty good looking. He seems promising. But he's insecure. And he's power hungry. And, and he not only wants the kingship, he wants the priesthood too. And what does he do when he gets denied the priesthood? He lies about wanting it. And he'll defend his kingship and murder anyone he even thinks possibly is in his way, including his own son. He comes after his own son, Jonathan. That's the kingdom of man on display in the scriptures for us. That's the people's choice. What happens? He dies. There's no, there's no dynasty. He dies. The kingdom is split and in tumult. Listen, be careful what you wish for. Because God sometimes will give it to you and then you'll wish he hadn't. The kingdom that man sets up will always fall short. Look at Matthew 6. Let's start in verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So what is, what is Jesus telling us here? He will take care of us. He'll provide. He'll be there. If God clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you? Therefore, he says, so I've, I've given you the, the premise God's going to take care of you, right? Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious. Why? Because God's going to take care of you. You're going to take a stand? You don't have to be anxious. Why? God's going to take care of you. He does not forsake his children. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
And what's, what's, what's the implication there? Well, he's already given it to us twice before. He knows you need it, and he's going to get it to you. He's going to make sure that you have what you need. And then what does Jesus say? Verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God. Not the kingdom of man. It's the kingdom of God. And what is God's kingdom? It has a kingdom of righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then look what happens, brothers and sisters. All these things will be added to you. You're seeking the kingdom. You're seeking His righteousness. Your heavenly Father provides. He provides and He provides and He provides. Even that widow... Right? She puts her, her however many three mites in the offering, right? God's providing for her. He was providing for her. Seek first the kingdom. Therefore, he says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. It, it, it doesn't matter what's, what, what's going on tomorrow. You might have the biggest meeting of your life. Tomorrow might be the day you've got to take a stand. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why not be anxious? Because God will be there. He will provide. He will walk with us. He will stand firm with us. He is the one that strengthens us to be able to stand firm. Remember, we've been reading earlier in Colossians, strengthened by the power of His might. Well, what's the power of His might? Well, part of that is the Holy Spirit that lives inside us to strengthen us, right? to have the fruit of the Spirit, to walk in His ways, so that we can seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. I mean, it's really God doing the whole thing. But are we going to be obedient and follow through? That's the question for us. Will we obey? So we can trust the Lord. Has He ever let you down, brothers and sisters? I mean, seriously, has He ever let you down? No. No, if, if you think that, you need, to, you need to rebuke that because that's a lie. Yeah. He, he doesn't let down his children. Okay. He doesn't do that. Yeah. Okay? Your Heavenly Father is, is, is better, uh, a, a trillion times better than your earthly father. And that's an understatement. Yeah. Okay? Your earthly father is going to let you down and probably has let you down many times. I know I've let my kids down. And what do I do when I do that? I go and I make it right. I apologize. I repent. I, I seek forgiveness. I ask for forgiveness. I admit I was wrong. But let him down a whole lot. But your Heavenly Father won't ever do that. He will never, ever, 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 ever let you down. And you're, you, you, you are privileged if you claim the name of Jesus and you really believe in Him. You're privileged to, to we're all in that big overarching kingdom, but you're part of that kingdom to come. Right? You're in that kingdom to come. You're part of that kingdom that for, for John 1 says, <clears throat> for all who believed in him, to those who trusted in his name, he, he gave the right to become children of God, right? That, that were transferred from the domain of darkness into the, his beloved son's kingdom, right? That's our kingdom. We're a part of it because we're his children. So the, the king that has all the power and all the authority can look after quite easily his children. Quite easily. Doesn't even have to lift a finger. He thinks it, it's done. 
Well, that's the God who will provide for us. That's the God who will stand with us. That's the God when we say, I'm not going to compromise on anything, then whatever the consequences, he'll be there with us. And guess what? So will the rest of the body of Christ. So let's be faithful. Jesus has a kingdom. It is here, but it's also coming. And one day, he'll return for his bride in full. We'll look at that more next week, but he is coming back. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the kingdom that is here. Thank you for the kingdom that is coming. As it says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We await your return, Lord, but we know you've given us a task to do until you do return. That you've given us gifts to accomplish that task, to increase the kingdom and to build up the kingdom. Lord, continue to fill us with your spirit so we are empowered to do that. Continue to have us say no to the world, no to our flesh, no to the devil, and yes to you. And Lord, when the day of testing comes, and it is here, may we stand firm. May we not back down. May we link arms with our brothers and sisters and say no and stand firm for you, Lord. No to the world and yes to you. You are so faithful. You will never, ever let us down. You'll never walk away. You'll never forsake your bride. Thank you. We love you. Amen.